Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome, everybody, to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing today with our Annals of Surgery Journal Club series with Dr. Chad Ball. Dr. Ball is a hepatobiliary surgeon and trauma acute care surgeon, and he's an associate professor of surgery at the University of Calgary. He's also the new editor of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Of note, he is the only surgeon in North America duly trained in hepatobiliary and trauma surgery, so he's uniquely qualified to discuss the surgical treatment of complex pancreatic disease with us today. Chad, welcome to uh, the Behind the Knife Annals of Surgery Journal Club. Thanks for having me, guys. There's a car in here. I'll just uh, you know, begin with uh, introducing this paper. So Dr. Ball was senior author of a paper in Annals of Surgery titled Surgical Transgastric Necrosectomy for Decretizing Pancreatitis, a Single-Stage Procedure for Waldorf Pancreatic Necrosis. Um, he wrote this with collaborators uh, at Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, at Stanford, and in, at, at Indiana, which is where they... Um, they proceeded with this multi-center case series. They had 178 patients who had Waldorf pancreatic necrosis, and all of them went underwent uh, transgastric debridement, or a novel technique whereby they uh, approached the, the pancreatic necrosis through the stomach, debrided dead tissue, and they established established permanent drainage between that necrotic cavity and the stomach. The average size of the Waldorf pancreatic necrosis was 14 centimeters, and patients had symptoms on average 50. For 60 days before the surgery, before surgery, and they were in the hospital for 29 days before surgery. Um, after after surgery, they found that 39% had positive cultures reflecting infected pancreatic necrosis. Um, 11% had or the the complications included infections, of which 11% patients of, of patients had infect, infections. Um, 6% of patients had uh, bleeding uh, issues, and 4% had external pancreatic fistulae. Uh, but of all these patients, 91% had some complete symptom resolution, 10% required repeat surgery, and the median length of stay after surgery was eight days, and the 92% were actually discharged home. But probably the most interesting part of this uh, paper is just their technique for doing this operation, and so we're looking forward to uh, discussing that with Dr. Ball. Uh, but first, what was your motivation for writing this paper, and, and what's the current standard of care for Waldorf pancreatic necrosis? That's a great question. Um, you know, within the world of hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery, there's sort of pancreas surgeons that really don't like the 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 topic of pancreatitis quite frankly and then there's other other uh, other surgeons that really truly love it a lot of us believe that the complexity that surrounds both acute and in particular chronic pancreatitis surgery is is in many ways more challenging than even pancreatic cancer uh, the surgery can be technically more challenging and certainly the the decision making and the, the nuanced nature of it uh, is as well um, the particular procedure that we talk about in this uh, in this multicenter study is not something that in concept is new. It's been around for a long time, and there's been pockets of use of, of variants of it for quite some time. Um, but the, the reality is, <coughs> in the modern era, there's, there's so many manuscripts discussing different ways to manage uh, necrotizing or severe acute pancreatitis that the, the pathway, uh, the therapeutic pathway has really become quite muddled and confusing for folks. What's nice about this technique is that it's a one-stop shop. So it's a single operative intervention that in the patients that are applicable for it, 
um, they're generally cured as as you highlighted in in the uh, in the manuscript preamble there. Um, whereas historically, these patients would have undergone a laparotomy, a traditional necrostectomy, so removing all that necrosis, and then drains would have been put down. And a significant number of those patients then have controlled pancreatic fistulas through a drain for months and months. And a large number of those have to go back to the operating room for a second very invasive laparotomy, uh, which would be typically a fistula jejunostomy, to basically dump that fistula into their hollow viscous organs. So the this procedure that we're talking about here takes that two-stage sort of year-long process and condenses it out, down into a single operation, again, when applicable. So the, the procedure itself uh, is certainly done in pockets uh, throughout North America and the world. Um, we have a close connection with Indiana, and so we'd plan to do this series uh, together. Um, and then Stanford is also known as a, a bastion of excellent pancreatitis care as well. So we brought them on board. So uh, in the paper, you actually describe both the open and uh, laparoscopic techniques used for this uh, method. Can you walk us through both of these techniques and then also um, who are exactly the candidates for the laparoscopic approach? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I'll say up front, you know, that all of the all the co-authors and myself, we all felt very strongly that that whether it's an open approach or a laparoscopic approach, the fundamental tenets or, or core principles of the procedure really are precisely the same, um, and those would be in general. Uh, the operative timing. One of the biggest advances in, in uh, necrotizing pancreatitis surgical care has been the understanding that we need to wait approximately one month uh, before we can intervene on on the vast majority of these patients. And there's a there's a number of rationales for that. Certainly, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, and you look at blood loss, for example, in those early necrosectomy patients, they're in the order of magnitude of three and four and eight liters, like in that range. Whereas we, in the modern era with this technique, will lose really almost no blood. Um, <clears throat> of course, that sounds like a pie-in-the-sky dream, uh, unless you have tremendous critical care. And that the advances in, in ICU care really uh, are what's allowed us to then you know, perpetuate the care of these patients for a month before the single operative intervention. So we have to give our ICU colleagues, um, you know, a tremendous uh, a thank you for allowing us to, to even get to this stage. So that's the number one principle, I would say. The number two principles really are, are two and three would be technical, and that's um, super soft tissue handling, knowing your anatomy extremely well. And the third thing, which is maybe the most important, is that when you attempt to intervene in these patients, whether you're doing it uh, via laparoscopic or an open approach, you want to get the vast majority of the necrosis out. So you don't want to leave you know, extended necrosis pockets um, after that first operation because those patients will then be colonized and potentially infected with regard to that necrosis if they're not already and it sort of gives them this very long and drawn-out hospital stay and unwellness. So those are the really the core principles. Again, low open and laparoscopic, it shouldn't matter. The, the interesting thing about the laparoscopic approach is two of the three centers in the study um, really did switch for a period of time from the open to the laparoscopic approach. Um, and the benefits of that would be obviously a smaller skin incision. But the reality is that 
uh, again, at two of our centers, we got so good at creating or doing this procedure through such a small incision, which, you know, the a, um, ballpark example would be about the width of your hand. So a laparotomy midline incision, the width of your hand in the epigastrium. Um, it wasn't really the incision that kept the patients in the hospital postoperatively. The, the other issue is that with the laparoscopic approach, it's quite hard to get into and adequately debride extended necrosis. So necrosis, uh, we sort of talk about it in four zones. There's the where you would expect it to be in the lesser sac. That's the first zone. It can also run down either, peric either pericolic gutter or, of course, the SMA, SMV leash. And a laparoscopic approach, it's, in a laparoscopic approach, it's much more difficult to get those latter um, three areas um, uh, cleaned out. Uh, so there can be some technical friction or some some technical anxiety in trying to do that. With an open approach, that's that's very easy. So to answer your question, uh, you know, and summarize, I guess a long-winded answer, I, I would say that. If the necrosum is primarily located in the lesser sac in that first zone, it, it really doesn't matter which, which technique you do. You're going to get most of it out. It'll still be a relatively rapid technique at around an hour of operative intervention time. If the necrosis extends into either the gutters or the leash, you really have to think twice about the, the procedure you're applying. Now, there is ways around that. We can use percutaneous drains to help guide us with secondary scopes from the bottom to the top in a torso and to breed that, those, uh, those uh, gutters, for example. So there is ways to get around it. Um, what I'll say is interesting is that really there wasn't much difference in terms of individual outcomes in the laparoscopic versus the open approach. So the length of stay was really no different. Um, in fact, the only thing that was, was there actually was a little bit higher re-intervention rate in the laparoscopic group. So that's not necessarily, um, you know, thousands of patients to make that point. But I think, again, it underscores sometimes the challenges in getting all the necrosum out with the laparoscopic-assisted approach. But they're both, the message I, I think that we would we would provide everybody reading the papers that they're both great techniques. There's a little bit of pro and a little bit of con to each each side of that equation. But as long as you're following the fundamental principles um, that we've outlined, uh, I really don't think it matters very much. Can you tell us a little bit more about those uh, difficult cases when there's material all the way out in the, the paracolic gutters and et cetera? You know, are you still able to do it with one anastomosis to the stomach or do you have to get a little bit more creative? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, it would depend on the volume and the specific location of, of the necrosum on your uh, preoperative cross-sectional imaging that you do just before you go to the OR. Um, you're exactly right. I mean, if it goes all the way down your pericolic gutters into your pelvis, and, you know, I just did one last week, quite honestly, in a male that was into their scrotum, that's going to be a patient that we need to uh, approach from the top as well as the bottom of their torso. So that particular patient did get two or bilateral percutaneous guidance catheters, and then we used a, a flushing, basically uh, hard urology scope to come up from the bottom with an enlarged incision. So you wash it out from the bottom, wash it out uh, from the other side at the bottom, and then do either your open or laparoscopic approach for the bulk of the necrosis in the lesser sac. So your your implication, your question is a, a great one. Um, again, the fundamental goal in the, any of these scenarios is the vast majority of that necrosis has to come out when you've decided to intervene, and ideally you do it in, in one uh, one operative go. So my next question is, can you walk us through the general continuum of care for these patients? Um, you know, as 
most many of our listeners know, uh, Waldorf pancreatic necrosis is sort of maybe the the end stage of of a very severe and um, and uh, morbid condition, you know, and they might come in much sicker with necrotizing pancreatitis, um, and they might be in the hospital for quite a long time before they can even be ready for an operation like this. So how do you treat these patients when they come in with necrotizing pancreatitis, um, you know, from start to finish? And especially since your paper mentions that, um, you know, percutaneous strains and all that can actually make your operation harder. How do you think about therapeutic options for patients with bad, bad pancreatitis? Yeah, that's a great question uh, as well. Um, you know, as as we we know and as we discussed a little bit, these patients are challenging to manage. The first thing I I would say that we all deeply believe, um, those of us that manage a lot of these patients, is this is really truly a multidisciplinary game. So, no matter how good of a technical pancreas surgeon you are, you need the help of your friends. You need um, a high speed interventional GI group. You need a high-speed interventional radiology group. You need a high-speed critical care team. And then ideally some partners who also enjoy looking after these patients because oftentimes, as you point out, they're in the hospital for a very long time. So I think we all know that most pancreatitis presents as mild pancreatitis, plus or minus, uh, you know, um, uh, um, a, a gallstone etiology, and those patients might get their gallbladder and go home. The small number of patients that present with severe necrotizing pancreatitis are certainly a special group. Um, our international consensus uh, group um, has provided and pu pu published um, a number of times now. Originally, it was the Atlanta criteria, and those have been revised, but um, the lexicon and, and the, the grading of severe, uh, or should say, should say of, of acute pancreatitis or necrotizing pancreatitis. But at the, the patients that we're talking about in this paper, there's a couple of things to note. Um, the first would be that, you know, again, secondary to our critical care group uh, in general, um, in all these centers, these patients were in hospital for, in general, for, for quite a period of time. Now, there is a small cohort, less than 10%, that do come in from home. So somebody comes into your hospital, generally they're going to get some sort of cross-sectional imaging, and the CT, for example, looks terrible. Um, the reality of that CT is that you can't clinically assess a patient just based on looking at that picture. And what I mean by that is some patients with terrible CT scans are able to eat steak, don't need uh, any real critical care at all, and can actually go home and come back at the one-month interval to have that intervention done. Now, again, that's the minority of folks, but certainly there's a, there's a reasonable cohort that can do that. Other folks have a very small amount of necrosis and are completely and utterly debilitated by it. They can be systemically unwell. They can tolerate absolutely nothing other than TPN. Um, so the opposite end of the spectrum. So the, the marriage of a clinical assessment and the radiology is, is really important. In general, these patients, as you point out, were in the hospital for, you know, upwards of a, um, quite, quite a while, you know, upwards of one to two months. Um, they might or might not have had critical care. Um, nutrition is paramount, again, as we all know, in these patients. And uh, one of the one of the dogmatic principles I think that's really been broken over the last ten years is that you need to bowel rest these patients. That's really not true for some of the reasons I mentioned. So, no matter how bad the necrosum looks at our centers, when folks come in, we will try and feed them orally, and you'll see that the vast majority of those patients will tolerate that that oral intake. A certain percentage won't, and those patients go on to have an NG feeding tube. And most of those patients then tolerate that um, that technique. 
A certain percentage won't, a small percentage. Those patients go on to NJ tube feeds. And if they fail those, then on to TPN. But it's a, it's a pyramid. So as you'd imagine, there's not that many patients on TPN. Um, but unless you try it, you really don't know. Of course, aspiration is always the, the risk factor, particularly for elderly patients. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind. So nutrition is important. As far as antimicrobial use goes, that's also been a, a, um, a dragon, so to speak, that's been slain, essentially. I, we divide antimicrobial use into three different groups, so uh, prophylactic, empiric, and, uh, of course, therapeutic. Therapeutic antimicrobials you're never going to get away from. So someone's super sick with necrotizing pancreatitis and they have a concurrent pneumonia or, or whatever, UTI or whatever it is, uh, those patients are going to be on antibiotics. It's clear now from 14, the accumulation of 14 different randomized control trials that prophylactic antimicrobial use is unhelpful. In fact, it's probably harmful when you look at um, um, the bacteria and, and, and fungi specimens that, that we grow over the last 15 years and the transition in them. So prophylactic, not so much. Obviously, if a patient gets sick, they require empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics until you sort out what the source of their infection is, then that's a different story as well. So there is a role for that potentially. So limiting your antimicrobial use would be another really important concept. <coughs> Pardon me. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned, the timing of the surgery is, is key at, at, uh, at about a month and ideally not before. Um, so, yeah, these patients are generally in the hospital. They can be very sick or they can be less sick. And they're sort of hanging out with, uh, with the team for a month until it's time to trigger the operative intervention. Okay. And then once you do make it to the, the operating room, can you sort of paint a picture of what you're doing in there? And, you know, how do you, how do you approach the necrosum and how do you make your anastomosis and, and all, that, all those considerations? Sure, yeah. I mean, technically, you only, quite frankly, you need to see a couple before I think you're ready to go. Um, it's conceptually and in, in the real world, as long as you maintain incredibly uh, soft tissue handling, it's, it's quite easy. So it would be an upper midline laparotomy classically. And so a couple of um, uh, retention sutures are great. And then you just make an anterior gastrotomy with your electrocautery, with your bovi. Um, now at this point you're in the stomach and if the necrosum ball is, is quite large, it's going to be palpable and quite obvious through the back wall of the stomach. Um, if it's not, uh, you can certainly use a small gauge needle to try and aspirate to, to help you find it. Once you're happy with it, you would just turn up the cautery again and head on through the back wall of the stomach, which of course is stuck um, to that, to that uh, walled off pancreatic necrosis fibrous wall. And usually when you break into that, there's a ton of fluid that would come out. Um, and we generally send not only the fluid itself or some of it, but also the pancreatic necrosum itself uh, for a culture uh, almost always. Um, once you're into that space, then uh, the adequate debridement is, is what your goal is. So a near complete debridement. And again, soft tissue handling is, is really the trump, the trump card that uh, must be remembered. Um, and there's lots of different instruments you can try and use to, to pull that out. It can be Russian forceps. It can be sponge sticks without the sponge in them. It can be debakies. Uh, certainly heavy irrigation uh, is very helpful as well uh, in order to try and, try and flush that out. Once you think your, your, um, your space is adequately cleaned out, uh, we would take a, a piece of that common wall between the posterior gastric wall and the wall of pancreatic necrosis wall, and we'd send it to the pathologist to be sure there's no epithelium, epithelium uh, in it. 
obviously we're trying to ensure that that's not a mucinocystic neoplasm. Um, in the context I've described, that's, that's a pretty unusual scenario, but we still do. Then that common channel now, or that hole, um, we really don't want it to, to bleed going forward, and it certainly is at risk due to the, the hypervascularity of that entire area. So we'll tend to take relatively large needle uh, in North America. That would be like an MH needle, and we'll run it in a walking fashion all the way around uh, in a circle, again, to promote hemostasis. We'll pass an NG tube down through the stomach, um, um, or anesthesiologist will, and we'll pop it right into that cavity. And then you typically close the front wall of the stomach in one or two layers. However, you would usually do that. You could staple it. Um, you could do anything you want. And that's really it. Um, the only other caveat to it uh, is that, of course, if it's a biliary-induced um, cause of the pancreatitis, it would be nice to take out the gallbladder at the same time, same operation. Um, sometimes that's possible, and sometimes, quite frankly, it's not because of the tremendous adhesions and the danger in doing that. And if you look at our series at our three centers, we're all about the same, which is just over half the time we're able to pop out the gallbladder and biliary cases. Um, yeah, and then you close the belly and, and away you go. You don't typically need to leave any close suction drains anywhere else because that cavity, again, is is contained and it's also decompressed into the GI tract, and that's what your goal is. Postoperatively, um, you know, we'll sit on the patients at each center for about 48 hours and then pull out the NG tube and give them clear fluids. So uh, if you encounter major bleeding during this technique, um, how, do you, how do you manage that intraoperatively? Yeah, that's a that's the critical question, and no matter how many of these you do, um, it's always what uh, what you worry about. Um, the reality is, I think we're all we're all trained and have read various things about you know packing and angiograms and so on. Um, some of that that conceptually works. Um, Sometimes, but more often the scenario is a little bit different. So, you know, just just to put it out there and state it, clearly the first thing is not to get into the bleeding uh, initially. So doing your first number of these with someone who's been there a lot. And, and to be honest, your your hand is probably, you know, the, the proverbial educated hand is probably the best uh, debridement tool we have. And what you find is, is when you pull out a lot of this dead pancreas, you can actually sometimes see, but almost always feel, for example, if your neck has died of the gland, you'll, you'll feel the, the portal vein there. You'll feel the splenic vein that's thrombosed. You can actually make out that anatomy just by feeling it. So making sure you don't tear those vessels or pull those vessels, whether they're thrombosed uh, on the venous side or they're not on the arterial side, of course, um, you know, um, is, is really critical. If you got into massive hemorrhage, the question always would be, is it arterial or is it venous? And you can certainly tell almost always by looking at it, is it, is it, is it bright or is it uh, dark, dark blood? Um, in, the, in the setting of a venous hemorrhage, that's a, that's a large problem. Um, and certainly packing and pressure and help and additional suckers and increased exposure is what you're gonna have to do. Um, call a friend immediately. Um, you can do, uh, of course, uh, venous embolizations, but in terms of what you've probably torn in that area, it's not going to work. So you're hoping for that pressure and some a little bit of time will arrest that hemorrhage. On the arterial side, of course, visceral arteriograms are reasonable. 
Um, I will say that most, it's believed, you know, in, ex, in experienced centers that most patients that historically have died because of hemorrhage die from the venous side. Um, so, you know, we all, I think, have read in textbooks, pack them and send them to the angio suite. And, and like uh, like those, those of us that have been in that scenario know it, it has to be an arterial really bleed to make that uh, a salvageable scenario. So I guess my short answer is the number one principle is don't get into the trouble in the first place. And if you do, sort it out whether it's venous or arterial and move forward from there with, with all the techniques that you have at your armamentarium to use. And moving back to the aspect of the care being on a continuum. Um, it was kind of briefly mentioned in the paper about endoscopic and percutaneous drainage techniques and, um, you know, why you would not want the percutaneous technique. But can you talk about when you would um, use those as a first method prior to going to the OR for the operative intervention? Sure, yeah. I mean, I um, I think it's interesting, you know, um, there's been significant confusion surrounding the beautiful work that the Dutch pancreatic surgical group has done regarding when we can use catheters and how we can use catheters. Um, you know, in North America, probably our, our, our best use of catheters, quite honestly, is how we discussed it earlier, which is as, as guidance tools for necrosis in, a, in uh, outside of the lesser sac in terms of ensuring debridement. Um, when you look at patients that are in the critical care suite, sort of as an aside, and um, somebody wants to put a drain in it, the question really becomes, how, is it pus as opposed to necrosum? And what I mean by that is we all have pictures in many of the lectures that we give of a percutaneous drain sitting beside essentially really stiff nasty mashed potatoes. And you realize very quickly in operating on these patients that that material is not going to come out of that drain. So one of the things that whether you use an endoscopic approach or a percutaneous approach, and don't get me wrong, there is patients, many patients that are better off suited for those approaches than the one we published, the surgical approach. But when you look at those, those patients, they require multiple interventions by really driven and uh, committed radiologists or gastroenterologists, depending on, on the scenario. Um, so it's all doable, um, but you need a committed group. And, and in many places, that's quite frankly not the, not the case. So if somebody, you know, if you paint the picture, somebody's in the, in the ICU, in the critical care suite, um, and they have a true liquid infection secondary to pancreatitis, and they are uh, essentially dying because of that, that's a great patient to do a percutaneous drain on, absolutely. Um, it's fantastic. But if you take a patient that has a large volume of solid necrosis and their walled-off pancreatic necrosis cavity, um, generally percutaneous drains are not going to fix that. And neither, to be fair, is a single endoscopic ultrasound-guided transgastric um, drain popped in. Uh, those patients need large axiom stents. They need multiple debridements. And when you look at that compared head-to-head -to, -head to surgery, they're often in the hospital a lot longer with the endoscopic approach. Um, the other fundamental problem or issue with percutaneous drains is that if you um, place one and you create a controlled pancreatic fistula, which is often the case, then the placement, the physical location of that drain in the torso really matters, meaning that um, if your drain is coming through the back or coming through the flank um, so so far, 
um, that it's difficult to um, find that within the peritoneal cavity if you are forced to do a fistula jejunostomy down the road and hook that up is a real challenge. So we always worry about not only placing the drains, uh, and that's more specific to the scenario, but also the location of the approach with which the, that drain goes in. So as you sort of uh, you know alluded to, um, the, a lot of these patients that get really sick, they do require some sort of procedure, whether it be percutaneous or endoscopic drainage. Um, but of course, some of these patients end up do end up requiring surgery uh, no matter what. And so I'm curious, do any of the lessons that you've learned uh, in Waldorf pancreatic necrosis apply? in acute pancreatitis or, or when patients are really sick and septic from it? And if you have to operate in the acute setting, do you try and establish internal drainage into the stomach or bowel, or do you sort of do it the old-fashioned way with large bore uh, external drains? Yeah, that's a, that's a super question. So I guess I would reframe it a little bit and say, again, the, the belief is that the vast majority of the patients we deal with, we, we, can, we can push them out to that 30-day mark and operate on them safely. However, the folks that get into trouble early and force our hand into the operating room are, is a short list of, of, of drivers. Um, they will have an ischemic gallbladder or they will have an ischemic colon most commonly. So those are things that happen within that first 30 days that you can't miss that might take you to the operating room. The other thing that historically certainly was a much a uh, more significant issue is abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, the full-fledged syndrome, not just intra-abdominal hypertension. So there's no question in, in the literature that that pendulum has swung to a reported incidence that's much higher than we quite honestly see at high-volume centers. Um, but in the patient that requires a massive resuscitation, which again, we all know is less and less common, those patients can develop abdominal compartment syndrome. So if you're operating on those folks for those reasons, then you would address those issues. So take out the colon, give them a stoma, for example, take out the gallbladder, put a tube cholecystostomy in it, for example, decompress the abdomen and get it closed as soon as you can um, alleviate the abdominal compartment syndrome, for example. Um, those take you there early, and we wouldn't typically touch the pancreas uh, for that reason. You're right, though. Every once in a while, you are forced into the tummy, into the belly, to deal with the necrosis in less than 30 days. And I, I'll say again that that's a really unusual scenario uh, amongst all of us that that do this often. In those folks, your 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 question, your implication is exactly right. You can't do a transgastric approach because the wall of the pancreatic necrosum is not fused to the back wall of the stomach. Um, so in that scenario, they're going to get, as you described, a traditional necrosectomy, either through um, sort of underneath um, the stomach through the greater omentum into the lesser sac, or even through the musical and centrally, whichever approach works for that particular patient. Um, you're going to do a traditional necrosectomy and leave an abundance of drains to try and control that subsequent planned pancreatic fistula. Does your center practice uh, the VARD procedure, the video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement? Yeah, you bet. I mean, there's there's nothing, to be honest with you, at, at the three centers uh, that were involved uh, in this study that we don't offer. Um, we, one of the reasons to your very initial question about motivation was we really like this procedure and think it's great for a subset of patients. But we also felt that the literature had swung too far to everyone, not everyone, but too many drains going in in too many circumstances without achieving that complete debridement scenario. Um, so it also speaks to the multidisciplinary nature of looking after this disease. 
And in most of our centers, in particular our three high-volume centers, we all work very closely together. We'll, all three of those groups will look at a patient and figure out the best approach and what we can do uh, well. So uh, the one thing that stood out to me when I first read the paper was uh, that the average size of these Waldorf necroses were um, greater than 10 centimeters in all three institutes. And I was curious about um, whether this technique is still, you know, advantageous uh, for the smaller Waldorf necroses or what your thoughts are on whether the size really matters at all. That's a great question. I, I love that question because it underlies um, another important tenant in, in trying to do this operation, which is that you have to have access to that walled-off necrosome cavity or collection. So literally looking at your, your CT scan or your MRI, whatever cross-sectional imaging you choose before is important in making sure that there is some common wall between the necrosome cavity and the GI tract, i.e. typically the stomach, on occasion the duodenum, um, that's well opposed and that you believe you're going to be able to access. So the smaller the wall of pancreatic necrosome cavity, of course, the less likely or the more challenging that scenario becomes. But there's no sort of lower size of, of, um, of lower size requirement or anything that's too large. You just want to base it um, from patient to patient depending on their anatomy. Yeah, and, and your paper mentions that your centers are, are truly high volume. You see at least one case a week of necrotizing pancreatitis. So what do you recommend for treatment of Waldorf necrosis or, or necrotizing pancreatitis in general at centers that don't have such a high volume? Yeah, that's, you guys, I mean, you're asking such great questions and, and that's, that's a struggle. And I don't think that any of us, any of the co-authors on this manuscript, despite the, the experience, have a great answer for that. Um, I'll take you sideways maybe in my answer a little bit, is that uh, a number of us on that uh, authorship list are, all three of us actually, who are program directors for HPB fellowships um, uh, at, our, at, at these three sites are are, uh, are on there. And it's a challenge that we deal with across HPB fellowships in North America. Um, you know, pancreatitis is important to learn in that fellowship, but there's some centers and then we'll just randomly, uh, won't, you know, name names, but we'll pick a cancer center, for example, um, you know, that wouldn't necessarily see any of this. So it's a problem not only for general surgeons, but it's also a problem even for some of the HPB graduates. And we've talked about a lot of different things, including shuttling fellows around to higher volume centers that, you know, do one thing well and the other thing less volume and vice versa. Um, that's hard to do for licensing issues and a number of other other reasons. But I, I don't have a great answer for you other than, you know, to uh, find out if someone in your hospital, um, a senior surgeon maybe, has seen a lot of this and done a lot of this, and then to look at some of the videos that are available online and some of the educational resources, and um, some of them are, are really quite excellent. Um, yeah, just through, through, through CME, and then hopefully you have a great relationship with um, if it's not someone at your center, then uh, a referral center in your region of the U.S. or Canada or wherever um, that sees a lot of this that you can call. And I think, again, none of the, you know, I see my, my two take-home messages are, again, the multidisciplinary nature of it. But the second would be that there's nothing that, that we talk about in this paper or that, you know, we've talked about in this in this call um, in this podcast that is special or super unique to a pancreas fellowship trained surgeon. 
Um, this is the bread and butter general surgery um, uh, scenario that we all get on our examinations, whether it's you know the American boards or the Royal College in Canada or Europe. Um, so we all have to know know how to do it to your point. And the educational resources are out there, and and people like the co-authors in this paper are um, are keen to help and love to help, and and are always happy to take a phone call at any time if you don't have a regional resource that's reasonable for you. So, any final thoughts regarding this paper or just kind of this problem in general? Uh, not, not tremendously. I think you know my last statement's probably uh, how I would summarize it and. I would thank you guys for the opportunity to talk about uh, transgastric necrostectomy in the surgical setting. And certainly, uh, you know, our three centers use it a lot. Uh, it's a sub-selected patient, group of patients that, that um, are appropriate for it. But when those patients are selected out appropriately, it's, uh, it really does save them essentially a year of, of ongoing suffering uh, as a single-stage procedure. Well, Chad, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife in our Annals of Surgery Journal Club. And again, congratulations on your study and the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. Until next time, dominate the day.